Hey, this is JJ Redick. You may know me as a basketball player. You may have seen me play during my college career at Duke University, or perhaps over the past decade playing in the NBA for the Magic, the Bucks, the Clippers, or the Sixers. Well, today I'm here to tell you about my new show, the JJ Redick Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. This is where you can find me interviewing athletes like my current teammate, Joel Embiid, as well as in-depth conversations with celebrities like the Late Late Show host, James Corden. The very first episode goes live later this week, so make sure to subscribe to the JJ Reddick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Boswell is ready. The snap, the ball, put down. The kick is up, arching through, and good! The Steelers have won it! On a 38-yard game-winning field goal by Chris Boswell. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Week 13 is in the books, including that Steelers-Bengals game, which Pittsburgh narrowly won out. But that is probably the least important thing to talk about from that game. The horrible Ryan Shazier injury kind of put a pall over everything. We will get to that, as well as the rest of Week 13. We'll also talk about the shakeup at the top of the NFC playoff picture. Plus, Danny Kelly will be here to talk about the Patriots' defense. Kevin, we're going to start with our four downs, though, and I don't think there's any other place to start outside of that Pittsburgh game. Yeah, I mean, even if Ryan Shazier wasn't a great player, this would have taken over the game, just seeing how scary that moment is. But the fact that Shazier is such a big name in the NFL, it really is It's going to take over this week of the news cycle, I think, just updates on him. Now, the, the most recent update as of Tuesday morning is maybe a spinal concussion, which isn't as bad as it sounds, apparently. Uh, Tommy Maddox had a similar injury the Steelers reporters were saying, and he missed one game uh, in 2002. Obviously, that's a different era. But I think that moments like that, because it's it's what's particularly upsetting about a moment like that is there seems to be no easy solution. That's the problem with that. Because it's, you know, it's not a doctor let him go back in the game after a head injury. It's not, oh, we can solve this with better helmets. It's or even the better tackling tackling technique that we talk about all the time. I mean, sometimes desperate tackles are made. Um, Sometimes guys put their head in the wrong spot. That's just how football works. And there's no way to get those moments out of the game. And that's what's so upsetting because the problem is the game itself. Yeah. And that's the issue with that one, right? You know, some of these huge hits that we see, whether it's what happened to Devontae Adams, something like that, that's the type of stuff they're trying to legislate out of the game, right? You're not allowed to hit receivers above the shoulders, things right. like that. This is a defensive player just yep. trying to make a play. Yep. And with how quickly that stuff happens, especially over the middle, I mean, you can practice all the correct technique that you want, but every once in a while, they're just going to be one or two moments where your body contorts in a way that you can't necessarily control. And you hit somebody with the top of your head. And unfortunately, this is occasionally the outcome. You know, there's a backboard, there's an ambulance and it's terrible. I mean, there's no doubt that it's terrible, but I don't know what the answer is. I mean, this is just something that's going to happen with the way that football currently works. And maybe that's a problem in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, I think you get in, I think once you see an injury like that, you get into the rabbit hole of 
of sort of an existential problem with football, which is <laughs> why, why do we, you know, I think Peter King tweeted this last night and he said, if you see that and you're a parent of a player who wants, or a kid who wants to play football, how do you let them play football? And I don't, at the, you know, I know that it's sort of, there's a recency bias in that having seen it last night, but I, I sort of agree with Peter. If you, if, if, if we have kids, I don't know how, how we say after watching that stuff, okay, you can, you know, go play. And I don't, I don't care. Um, I mean, it certainly, certainly gives you pause. And I'm not trying to minimize what happened to Ryan Cheesier last night. I mean, it's a horrific injury. And again, it's brought upon by just the absolute, I think Doug Baldwin said, it's not a collision sport. It's a brutal violence sport. I mean, that's right. it's saying it's a contact sport, brutal collision sport. I mean, right. that's what it is. And so, but that's one problem is the fact that you can have this devastating injury on a single play. This is separate to the conversation we're having about head injuries, though. I think that's important to understand. They're both what connects them is that a play like that and the idea that repeated subconcussive hits are the most problematic part of player safety. What joins those two things is that they're inherent to the way the game is played. And you probably can't get rid of them without changing football at a fundamental level. I guess there's a pretty big issue if what we saw last night is not the biggest issue in the sport. I know. Trust me. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at is that that is so traumatic. And in that moment, I don't even understand how you keep playing. I don't understand how he I mean, how he must have felt, obviously, but just his family, everything else. I mean, that stuff is so hard to deal with in the moment, but kind of stepping back, that still isn't the issue that we're talking about when it comes to player safety. And again, that that probably is its own issue. I just think, you know, one of the things that's that stuck with me and will stick with me is a report by Didi Kinkabwala, my old, my old Wall Street Journal colleague, um, last night where she was talking about how when Shazier was getting loaded into the ambulance, he kept pointing at his, his lower body and his waist. And if you saw, obviously, Shazier on the field last night, you, you can sort of guess how he was reacting and just the sheer terror that must have been going yeah. through his his head. Um, it's it's horrifying. And obviously, you know, he's the one you think about the most. But the guy that whose reaction stuck with me was just watching Vince Williams when yeah, he was going out to the backboard. That's happened to me before. I when I was a senior in high school, one of my best friends got flipped onto his head mm-hmm. and they had to bring out the ambulance. And you're just sitting there watching and you just. I remember that night so incredibly well and just understanding how you keep playing. I mean, I did, and I don't understand how we did, but just not knowing, just spending the next two hours. I mean, I I, this kid I've known for a decade Mm -hmm. and is still like a very good friend of mine. And the fact that we didn't know an hour later, I could have walked off the field and he, they could have told me he'll never walk again. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it's, I mean, the fact that that's part of this game is again, it's hard to reconcile at times, but I don't know what you do. I don't know the answer, and I'm not sure. Well, that's what's so helpless. Yeah. That's why we feel so helpless about the situation and why we're more upset than normal because every single problem the NFL seems to have, they have an army of experts, doctors, and lobbyists who are at least telling us, oh, it's getting better. Even when they say concussions are up, you know, 15% as they they have been in the last two or three years it's it's oh well that's because they're being reported more this is actually yeah. a good thing everything has been spun in a positive way as if we're on some march towards progress in the sport of football which in some situations maybe we are I, I'm I'm less optimistic than 
the league office, obviously. Um, but I this is not one of those way. things. This is not one of those things where they can spin it in any good way. This this sucks. No. And this is, I think that John Gruden and Sean McDonough, they're talking about how, you know, Ben Roethlisberger talk, was talking the night before about just the violence and kind of the brutality of that rivalry and how he thinks that he's afraid of it sometimes just yeah. because of the way the guys play. And they did a good job of separating those two things. But then the fact that that stuff kind of lingered the rest of the game was kind of disgusting to me. Like, I can't believe that there was that much just chippiness and, and whatever over the course of the that those next three quarters after what had happened. Like, there's a way to kind of figure out that you can be a professional in all this. And the way that Roth- Roethlisberger said a lot of dumb stuff this year, but him describing the Ravens-Steelers game and saying that you can still feel there's a respect. Guys aren't trying to hurt each other. I-, I think that that's just kind of one step that people that the league can take or teams can take. It's we're all here to do a job. Like, there's no reason to take it to that next step. And I think that's an important thing for people to realize. Yep, totally agree. Totally agree. I was surprised, too, at the level of violence that, that continued through the, the three quarters after that. Yeah, I mean, rivalry. And then even thing, even I, some of the post game comments, I know it was very emotional, but if you saw the the perfect response from the Steelers locker room where Antonio Brown is is screaming about karma and stuff, I mean, it was very heated. Um, and I don't know if that's a reaction to what they saw on the field or they were just able to compartmentalize it or whatever. But it was uh, I was I was surprised at the the level of heat for the for the remaining three quarters after seeing that. All right, let's move on. Let's get to the other primetime game here. For second down, let's talk about those zombie Seahawks who just refuse to go quietly into the night. In the gun on third down, high shotgun snap. Wilson drops to throw, wants to float it for the end zone. It is Lockett who makes the catch and tiptoes along the left side of the end zone for the touchdown. You know what I kind of like about this is that I picked the Seahawks to make the Super Bowl. And I haven't backed off that just because we haven't really done any sort of midseason repredictions or whatever. Yeah, it's and good. So I haven't put you in that spot. I don't. I I don't have to do it yet. Like I'm I'm going obviously going to at some point, but I kind of like the idea that I'm just going to let it ride. Here come the Seahawks. Here comes the the new John Kitna, Russell Wilson. If anybody missed what I meant last week, it's that John Kitna was the previous record holder for yards accounted for on a percentage basis that Russell Wilson's about to smash. And I think that's kind of the question I wanted to ask you, and you've answered it already, is that are people going to regret writing off the CL team at any point? I mean, now with that win, they're pretty much pointed toward the playoffs. I mean, it's going to take a lot for them to lose. I think the Green Bay is going to have to make a nice little run. So it's that win was huge. And I think that as we were kind of trying to figure out the NFC field, that Seattle game against Philly was just kind of penciled in as a loss. And now, you know, they're sitting at eight and four. They're in a really good spot. So it's one of those things where you lose Camp Chancellor and you lose Richard Sherman. And those are such huge names and they've been around for so long. And you kind of forget just how many good players are still on the Seahawks. You Pete know, Carroll Russell. has Chris Carson is unbelievably ahead of schedule. But even beyond Chris Carson, Mike Davis was really good on yeah. Sunday night. And then you have guys on the other side of the ball. I, I, I wrote this, and I've, I've just kind of talked about it in a couple of days since. Bobby Wagner looks like he's actually possessed. Like, it looks mm-hmm. like a supernatural movie right now. The move, the play I, I'm thinking of was in the first quarter, and he just kind of stalked J.H.I. in the backfield. Yeah. And then after the tackle, like, 
moonwalked on the ground on all fours before getting up. It just looks like he's in this ridiculous zone right now. It's kind of terrifying want, to watch. It's interesting to me because Danny said something the other day that I think we can talk to him about later, but he said, you know, pissed off Seahawks are better than, yes. you know, over, you know, everybody is content Seahawks. Everybody's paid. Nobody's pissed off. Nobody's yelling at each other. Having said that, I'll take Sherman and Chancer. Of course, absolutely. But I'm just saying, it's just how dangerous are they in a, in a league where you know you don't feel that great about the completeness of most teams? You would have said Philly is the team you felt best about, top to bottom, and then they lose to Seattle. I mean, it's just one of those things where I don't know. If we're talking about buzz saws and we're trying to figure out who is one, I think that that Seattle team. I, I ranked them very high in my the threat index that I did for the, kind of the second tier playoff teams, just because. You still have Russell Wilson. You still have guys in that defense. Frank Clark had a huge game. Yep. They have a lot of talented people over there. And even if, you know, they're not complete, even if you're worried about who's not there, there's still a lot of guys left. Did what you saw on Sunday make you think that the Seahawks could beat the Eagles in Philadelphia in a playoff game? Or is this just one of those? Because here's the thing for me. I think... Even really good teams, even if the Seahawks, the, the Eagles go 13 and three, teams just sort of have those games where the 100%. offense isn't working. It's just they go across the country. They don't, you know, you fumble on the one yard line. On the one yard line. I yeah. mean, this is just, it was very like Madden tells you you're not going to win the game, right? Like that's, that's it. It's, I, and, I just felt like you could almost write that game off for the Eagles. And so I'm not, ready to say the Seahawks should beat the Eagles in Philadelphia at this point. I'm absolutely not. I mean, I think that that's the exact type of game you're talking about. Even in the best seasons, you know, think about when the Patriots won undefeated, how many games they were just scared. You know, on the road, you run it was against the Eagles. The, oh, primetime oh, game was the, one of them. the Ravens. Yeah, I mean, so there the are plenty one. of games where even if you're a fantastic team, you're going to have these moments. And a team like Seattle is the team you're going to have them against in Seattle. I mean, just somebody with... Still that core of talent that if one or two guys just have monster games, they can come up and bite you. And that's exactly what happened. And the pass rush was better for Seattle. Did some really interesting things. That Justin Coleman play, the where he blitzed off the edge after they were twisting. You just don't see that kind of stuff from the Seahawks that much because the talent is so good, typically, that they don't have to be wonky in their schematic stuff defensively. But now they're blitzing more. I think they're finding who they have to be when they can't just line up and beat you and finding that kind of middle ground between, all right, we need to be a little more creative because we don't have the talent, but we still have some talent. I think that could be a nice little sweet spot for them defensively where they could still be pretty dangerous. Okay. I have a thought about this. I have a broad over overarching thought about this. And it's that talking to somebody the other day actually may have been Mike Lombardi. And he was saying that situational football is more important than ever in the NFL because the games, there's so much parody. There's so much, you know, mediocrity, quite frankly, that the only things that matter are how good is your two minute? How good is your, uh, you know, end of half execution? How good is your third down execution? Very specific things. What's your third and short package? And I think that Pete Carroll is in there with Bill Belichick as one of the best situational coaches in football. And I think as we increase the sort of great parity in the NFL, that's going to become more important. So, you know, is Andy Reid a great situational coach? 
No, that that's been proven. Um, you know that, that he doesn't maybe manage the clock as well as some other guys. Belichick and Carroll will reign when it's a parody-driven league because they know how to make up the very, very, very minute differences between two teams. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that you've seen Seattle's been solid in the red zone again. I think they're 10th in points per red zone trip uh, for defenses, which when you're not that great of a defense and you know it's you have some issues, the fact that you can still be a decent red zone defense is important. So I agree. I, I think that they still have that situational aspect to them and they still have guys that can just go make plays. I mean... The fact that Wilson's making both of those throws down the left side to Graham and Baldwin just in big spots, that happens. You know, it hasn't been a spotless season for Russell Wilson, but he's still going to make enough plays, and that's what matters. You know, when you don't have consistency offensively, hopefully you can find lightning in a bottle two or three times a game, and that's what the Seahawks have to bank on. The NFC playoffs are going to be ridiculous. Let's get to that. Third down, let's stay in the NFC. Let's talk about how that Eagles loss combined with wins by the Saints and the Vikings kind of shakes up the top of the playoff picture because, you know, Philly was cruising and they absolutely were. You figured that they'll have the number one seed and they look like the best team. Still very well might. You know, they're 10 and 2. So are the Vikings. Saints are sitting at 9 and 3. Minnesota's win to me was extremely impressive. Yep. And they're not blowing out Atlanta like they have with some other teams this year. But to go in and really dominate the Falcons offense on third down, take Julio Jones out of the game, we talk so much about Case Keenum, Adam Thielen, whatever, the surprising parts of this Vikings team, but the defense is still so disgustingly good. <laughs> and that's what they were again on Sunday. And now Minnesota's hot as hell. And if they get home field advantage, the Super Bowl's in Minneapolis. It's kind of crazy. I saw an interesting tweet the other day, and it was just a comparison between all of the 10 and 2 teams. And the Eagles have beaten the Panthers. That's essentially their their marquee win. The Patriots have beaten the Saints and the Falcons. The Vikings have beaten the Saints, Ravens, Rams, and Falcons. Yeah. And leaving aside the fact that this this tweet indicates that the Ravens are some sort of signature win, um, they've still defeated at least three good teams in the Saints, Rams, and Falcons. And so... And they play the Panthers this week. And they play the Panthers <laughs> this week. And that's what, remember, I, last week my whole thing was how we're about to find out a lot of things about the NFC playoff picture because you get the sort of NFC South round robin with the Saints and the Falcons and the Panthers. And then you get the Vikings going through the NFC South. And that's where the concentration of power is right now. And so I can't wait to see this. I cannot wait to see this. And I just, at some point, and I say it all the time, you are what your record says you are, the Vikings are a damn good team. I understand that Case Keenum is their quarterback and you're hesitant to believe, but I mean, for some reason, we've bought into the Rams. And by we, I mean just sort of the national media. We've bought into the Rams much more quickly than we have the Vikings. And Case Keenum was better than Jared Goff last year. I think that what's impressed me most about Minnesota is that it's a little bit of a different version of a win every single week right they never do it the same way twice but they always manage to do it and by always i mean like <laughs> eight in a row so la- this week a few things stuck out to me one the fact that xavier Rhodes can just go up and muscle julio jones and the fact that they can do it all game you have guys over the tops and Deho made a great play on kind of a jump ball for jones I mean, they're so disciplined defensively and that's the kind of thing i feel like is missing from a lot of these units and because minnesota's so spotless health-wise on defense. They're so complete. You just have these plays where teams are trying to do throwback play-action passes and everything else and just get defenses moving in the wrong direction. 
And as soon as you do that, Harrison Smith is dropping you for a one-yard gain because he didn't do that. And they always have one guy that's going to make a play, and that's so important in a league where it seems like being able to manipulate a defense is the most important thing. And the other part of it is, offensively, it's always something. On Sunday, the stats don't jump out at you. Keenan was fine. He had a nice game. But there's like one big Murray run here and there. There's one play where Keenum extends it just outside the pocket and gets a first down. I wrote about it in my Monday recap. He's been pressured on 38.2% of dropbacks, which is top five in the league. He's been sacked 6% of the time on those. That's insane. Like, that's incredible how much they're willing to or how much they're able to avoid disaster. And when your offense was so problematic up front last year, when you lose your quarterback and your starting running back, the fact that disaster hasn't befallen you is unbelievably impressive. I'm They've all, just been able to march on. I'm all over Brian Baldinger's Twitter breakdowns, as usual. Our favorite <laughs> great, thing in man. the world. And he pointed out Keenum's had a, a quarterback rating over 100 for four straight games. And just the way they use movement before the snap, where they're putting multiple guys in movement, and and just really, I'm just so impressed with the way Pat Shermer's run this offense. I mean, I just, should Pat Shermer get a head coaching job again? I don't know, man. I mean, he's done a great job. That that's just one of those. If he does, it's gonna be people are gonna just be so salty about it. That's one of the. Here's my question. We I wrote this a couple weeks ago, but like the the coach churn has sort of ruined the NFL coaching market. Like seven openings a year, basically over the past three years, has made it so everyone just gets fired all the time, and and there's just not a deep pool. So you either have to go to college, you have to go either with a really young guy like like the Rams did. Or you have to go with the retread. And when I'm thinking about retreads here, I mean, Pat Shermer's in the top five, right? He's done an unbelievable job. I mean, everything about that offense is impressive, from player development to the way they've been able to kind of integrate new guys seamlessly. Offensive lines take a while to gel. They were good right away with every all new starters. It's been very, very impressive. I mean, I think that that's the team that, even with all the weirdness that of this version of the Saints or you know how good the Eagles are, or even the Rams, the Vikings being able to do this offensively while maintaining the defense is kind of what's made me shake my head all season. Man, Baldinger really hates Geno Smith. He's <laughs> got, got a tweet storm here. Let's talk about the Saints for two seconds because I think that that's another uh-huh. hugely impressive win from this yes. from this Sunday. I mean. What is there left to say about the Saints? I mean, this team just seems to get it done no matter what. And the thing that just kind of shocked me on Sunday is that they were able to just run the ball in Carolina. I would figured they would have to sling it around a little more than they have in games past. And it feels like Kamara and Mark Ingram and this stuff is just matchup proof now. They're just able to kind of get it going against anybody. And I just didn't see that happening against Carolina. I thought this would be the week where we'd see a little bit of a different version. And they didn't even have to do that. Alvin Kamara, 8.4 yards per touch is a stat via NFL.com. 8.4. Have you seen the stat already? Yes. 8.4 yards per touch. In the last 25 seasons, there's only one running back who's even above 7. Excuse me, 7.1. And it's Darren Sproles, who is 7.6. For these same Saints. But... Kamara's almost getting a yard more than that. <laughs> I know. I mean, the Marshall guy's been unbelievable. Falk, Jamal Charles, Charlie Garner, hey now. All at seven. I mean, Alvin Kamara is historically good. I thought it was interesting 
Sean Payton joked about how they had no idea how good he was, otherwise they wouldn't have taken him in the up. third round. Um, you know, I think that there were some podcasters who were calling for him to be a high second round pick. And by that, I mean me. But, you know, what are you going to do? And I think Peyton's point was interesting, just the sense that they didn't know what they'd get as a runner. You know, they viewed him as kind of this secondary option to Ingram and more of a pass catching back, but they didn't know what they would get as a just a running back. And that's what they've gotten a ton from is that every time he gets the ball, no matter how they give it to him, he's making something happen. And that's rare. It's rare for a back built like that. It's rare for a back that they whose role they envision so differently. Every time they give him the ball, something good happens. And yep. when you have Drew Brees at quarterback and your other running back is pretty damn good, it tends to work. My favorite thing right now, maybe on the planet, is reporters asking Drew Brees like about his new role. And I think I don't think he really accepts that he has a new role. So he has, but he has to do the nice guy, like I'm on camera thing. So he's like, well, you know, my job's still the same. And he sort of short circuits because he doesn't want to be like, I'm Drew fucking Breeze. Yeah. Uh, you can measure me for my Hall of Fame jacket right now. Yeah. And I'm also, by the way, these guys see eight man boxes 20% of the time because of me. Yeah. It all kind of works together. I feel like that's the thing we sometimes forget. All right. Let's move on to fourth down. Packers win an ugly game against Tampa Bay and yep. just an, an ugly season for Tampa Bay. But what I want to talk about is more so what's on the horizon here. Yep. And that's that with the Bucks, with the Packers win, with the Panthers loss, things are starting to get interesting here because Aaron Rodgers is practicing again. And the whole idea with Rodgers coming back was he wouldn't unless they were in it, unless that you know, there was a reason to. So now you have the Packers... At six and six, the Panthers at eight and four. We talk about this already. The Panthers play the Vikings next week. The Packers play the Browns. So there's a very good chance that two weeks from now, the Packers and the Panthers will play each other with Green Bay one game back. And that is the day that Aaron Rodgers is eligible to return. So in this scenario, that game, if both of those wins and loss kind of situations go down the way we think, that game will be for the second wild card spot in the NFC at that very moment. This could really happen. This is not some like pipe dream anymore with Aaron Rodgers being the, you know, guy to ride in on a white horse. It, it, it's really, really possible. And that is just terrifying. When, when he comes back, do you think, you know, I think you made the, the analogy to the final hour of John Wick. Yeah. Do you think he picks up right where he left off? Or do you think that there's this... I mean, I just... I worry Aaron is such a competitor that I worry he's going to come back just to sort of light the world on fire and he might do it too early. Just because he comes off IR and is eligible to come off IR doesn't necessarily mean he should. You know, I think the Ian Rappaport reported he's not ahead of schedule. He's just on schedule. And so I do worry for the long-term health of Aaron Rodgers... We don't. We certainly don't need another quarterback working his way out of the league. And you know, if Rodgers comes back and gets hurt, that's disastrous. This isn't a back injury, though. You know, this is a. Um, it's a pretty simple kind of like. Sure. You break your collarbone, it heals. It's. I've seen him do this. I watched it happen a few years ago. It was at the expense of my team when he came back in Week Seventeen. Yeah, Tony. Ro- Tony Romo had some collarbone problems. But you can break it. If you break it, it, it well, he breaks broke easier his the twice. next time. Yes. 
but it still is one of those things where I don't think it's going to linger. I feel like he's going to come back and play just fine. I watched it happen already. He came back and torched the Bears in Week 17 a few years ago in this exact scenario. That was when he could come back to help them make the playoffs, and he did, and they did. So oh, I remember. It, it's it, This really seems like it's kind of coming together, and I would not rule them out. And if they no, do make the playoffs, I. if they make it, no one wants to see him. That he is like the magic bullet in all of this. And it'd be fun. As a Bears fan, it would not be fun, but it's time to start kind of considering that it's possible. When I know did they you, play I have Minnesota a question. next week, but... I have a question. As a Bears fan, when did you flip the switch and you were just like, like, what year was it? You're like, I don't care. I'm a Bears fan. This is fun to watch. I think when I started covering the league. Sure. So just because it's hard to hate teams when you are around the players and know them and sure. like them. I mean, just guys that you respect. I mean, they're all human beings. I think that's when it probably changed. I'd say maybe three or four years ago. How's that working out for you? It's not great because my team is an absolute disaster all the time. And it seems like they're going to make the playoffs for the 10th straight year in a year where they shouldn't have. All right, let's get to your uh, craziest headline of the week, Kevin. All right. I just, I, I, I'm obsessed with the story and I want to talk about it. Here, here's the headline. Replay the down second silver dome blast works. Did you see that they tried to bring down the Pontiac silver dome and it didn't work? Yes. Does, is there any overlap between the people who, who run the Lions organization and the people who are trying to bring down the Silver Dome? I hope so. It would just make too much sense. I went to the Silver Dome last year, two years ago. For what? We, when I was working at SI, we were kind of doing this like road trip for the Super Bowl, and they wanted me to go and write about the Niners Super Bowl that was there and also like see what was left of the Silver Dome and I almost got like in very big trouble because I was trying to sneak into the Silver Dome and there was a security guard in a very old suburban and he kicked me off the property. Is it the same security guard who was is it like the guy at the end of uh, Indiana Jones guarding the the Holy Grail was the Holy Grail? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, it probably was. I, can, I, mean, I confused the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant. It was. Was it like that where he he's watching over the Silver Dome? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. What is he that guy just, doing now that it's been exploded? Uh, totally unclear. He was in a very old suburban and he was just chasing me around the lot. It was, I would have just written about that guy. Uh, Instead, it, it he tried just, to put you in jail. Yeah, he was. He was not happy with me. He was really not happy. Was he I tried yelling to sneak back anything? In a times. Was he yelling like "Don't disrespect the Silver Dome"? I don't remember what he WrestleMania said. WrestleMania three was here. That was kind of yeah, but that was the idea. It was like so many important sporting events were there, and it was just kind of a wasteland after that. And then somebody did sneak in and take pictures, which I was very yeah, jealous of. I'm wondering how he got around the crotchety security guard in the suburban. He drank from the right Holy Grail. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty clear. <laughs> I chose poorly, apparently. All right. Yeah, I uh, it, it did not go well, but it was fun. It was a good effort. I mean, I'm glad I tried to sneak in. I'm just sad I was not successful. That's amazing. Yeah. What you a know, stadium. F- fun little times. I went to a Bears-Lions game there years ago. Oh, my God. I mean, I never did that. On Thanksgiving. I went to plenty of Bears-Lions games in the 90s, but there was always a soldier field. I got food poisoning from the Silverdome <laughs> food. Not a great memory, to be honest with you. Sorry, buddy. Not as good as my Silverdome memory, apparently. You didn't get in. Oh, I know. That's what I mean. We both had kind of tough, tough deals at the Silver Dome. Uh, who's had a good time at the Silver Dome, I guess, is the question. Maybe Barry Sanders once no, or twice. I don't. Barry Sanders bailed on the Silver Dome as soon as he could. Who had uh, the best? Who had the best run in Silver Dome history? 
I mean, they, was it probably Andre the Giant? <laughs> Who won was that? Was it actually WrestleMania 3 that they were there? Yes, I believe okay. so. I don't want to get that, you know, they're come after me. I'm almost positive it was WrestleMania 3. As someone who wrote about the Silverdome, you know, not that long ago. Yes. March 29th, 1987. Which was about six months before I was born. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody watch the Andre the Giant documentary on yeah, HBO, absolutely. by the way. There's the plug. This whole podcast is the last year and a half has been a viral advertisement for this moment. Uh, native Andre the Giant documentary advertising. Yeah. That's what the Ringer NFL show is for. All right, let's get to my ringer of the week. And you know, this is the first time we're gonna have a quarterback here. But when you're playing for a one-win team and you know you throw for not that many yards, I don't think your performance is that obviously great. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo was very good for the 49ers on Hell Sunday. yeah, he was. And I think that you know they scored 15 points, and that doesn't look all that impressive, but just really moved the ball up and down the field. He looked incredibly comfortable, threw the ball accurately. It's just, you know, it's one game. It's against a team that's not very great, but does have a solid defense. So after four quarters, I'd say 49ers fans should feel pretty darn good about the choice that was made. I mean, the guy looked really good, is subtly mobile. And I think that that's a big thing in Shanahan's offense. The fact that he's not going to be afraid to move around. All the boot stuff is going to be in play. So, I mean, right now the returns, you got to be happy with it. And I think that, I wrote about this a couple times. I wrote about this on Monday, but the 49ers offense with Garoppolo, I think as you start to piece it together, can get there quicker than people think. I thought Goodwin was fantastic on Sunday for San Francisco. I mean, just doing things I didn't think he could do. And again, it's all relative, but when you pick a guy to essentially be somebody who runs down the field very fast and he looks like an NFL wide receiver in more moments than that, you got to be happy with it. Garcon... I, you know, I've never been shy about how much I like him. Yep. They need a couple more pieces. I think that a number one wide receiver will be really important for them because they don't have that guy. You know, the comparison I've made in the last couple of days is that Goodwin and, and uh, Garcon to me kind of remind me of what Gabriel and Sanu were for Atlanta. Yep. And you need that Julio Jones guy. Obviously, Julio Jones doesn't grow on trees. You can't just find one. But a big body receiver that you know, can hurt you on crossing routes but can also go get the ball. And we'll see. I mean, they have a top five pick. They have a ton of money in free agency. The guy I threw out yesterday was Allen Robinson would be interesting to me just as a skill set that they don't have right now. Allen Robinson, Marquise Goodwin, Pierre Garcon, George Kittle, who is a young tight end, I think has a lot of talent, and Jimmy Garoppolo. Now we're starting to get interesting. They need some interior offensive linemen, 100%. But again, I think that Garoppolo is the biggest piece, obviously, in have that offense going forward and whether or not they were going to find something with Shanahan. And so far I've just been very impressed. I thought that everything he did on Sunday was pretty darn good without a lot to work with. Trent Taylor was floated by Baldinger as the number one connection in the future with Jimmy Garoppolo. That's very funny. I mean, he'll be the slot receiver. That's fine. We, we, they, you could have those other three guys plus Trent. Taylor. I get all my future uh, scouting reports from Brian Baldinger. Yeah, as you should. All right, coming up, Danny Kelly will tell us how the Patriots' defense is actually just as good as it was last year, which is a scary thing. Plus, we'll offer our lasting impressions from Week 13. It's the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Buying tickets to sporting events and concerts can be complicated, but Kevin, there's an easier way to buy. It's with SeatGeek. 
It's pretty easy. You can buy and sell tickets with just two taps. SeatGeek gets you closer to the action for a great value, and it saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. SeatGeek also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available, too. Because we're such big fans, our listeners will get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code, and a promo code Ringer NFL. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code Ringer NFL today. We also want to take a second to tell you about Hotel Tonight, an awesome app for finding and booking great deals at great hotels. The holidays are coming up, and you know what that means. Lots of family time, Robert. But with the Hotel Tonight app, you can have the best of both worlds. Visit your family and stay in a sweet hotel. No crashing on an air mattress in your old bedroom that your parents turn into a gym. It's a terrible feeling. What's even better is that you don't have to wait until your family starts to drive you crazy. You can actually book a room up to seven days in advance everywhere and up to 100 days in advance in certain major cities. Which means you can lock down your holiday plans before you head home. Or wait until the last minute if that's more your speed. That's the beauty of Hotel Tonight. Whether you need a room for tonight, the holidays, or beyond, you definitely want to download the Hotel Tonight app. So this year, avoid that creaky old pullout couch and get a room with Hotel Tonight. Time to welcome in our good friend, Danny Kelly. Danny, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. Danny. How are you guys doing? <laughs> okay. I'm sure you're just riding the Seahawks high still. I, I would oh. be. That was a fun game. Yeah, was a really I'm sure it was for you. I had the exact opposite <laughs> experience on Sunday, so it's, that, that's still lingering with me. So I figured you'd be, you know, on the other side of it. Yeah. All right, buddy. Tom Brady did not have his best game on Sunday, but the Patriots defense continued to be impressive. What is it that's turned that New England defense around? Well, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning of the year. I remember Kevin, when I was like, I trust the I trust the Patriots to get it figured out. And Kevin was like, why do we do that? You know, we, wait, I, mean, I just want to say that that was a pro Patriots point. They're, they're the only they're the rare species yeah. where we're just like, yeah, whatever. We trust them. They'll figure um, it out. And I mean, yeah, and they have done it. I think it's just I don't think they've even like changed anything major schematically. And, and they've even done it with a bunch of injuries, too. Yeah. Um. You know, I think it's just a matter of like communication, you know, the right type of execution from everybody. It's it's kind of just crazy how the little things like that do help. I mean, obviously, I don't think the Patriots have turned into like an elite defense or like anything like that where it's, you know, they're not number one in DVOA. They're actually 29th in DVOA right now, which is something that Aaron Schatz has written about a couple of different times recently. It's a, DVOA just seems to underrate them a little bit, but. I mean, if you look at the first four games, how bad they were, they were giving up 32 points per game. Um, and then over the last eight weeks, their eight-game eight win streak, they've only given up 11.8 points per game, which is best in the NFL. So, I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing as last year where they were the, the top defense in terms of scoring defense. Last year, they were probably middling in terms of a lot of the efficiency stats, but they're just really good in the red zone. You know, they're the bend-don't-break type of defense, and... Obviously, it helps to have a very good offense and special teams group, giving them good field, you know, field position, all that. But I mean, it's just kind of crazy how they've cleaned it up. It makes it. I mean, we talked about this early on in the year. It's like it makes them scary again now that they have that balance. The number one team in points per red zone trip in the NFL coming into week 13 was the Chargers, which they're a good defense. Number two was Jacksonville, which again, yeah, Patriots are number three. Yeah. And when your offense is that good, as long as you can keep teams out of the end zone and as long as you can keep the score down while teams are moving the ball, it doesn't matter. 
That offense is going to score points. I mean, they're able to do it in so many different ways. Obviously, you know, no Gronk for a game, but their just collection of weapons on that side is so dangerous that if you can keep teams to 21, you're probably going to win most games. And that's a standard that most NFL teams just can't live by defensively. I mean, you yeah, can't absolutely. just rely on your def- our offense like that, but the Patriots can't. And I'm not going to say this is the best Patriots defense ever. Obviously, it's not, but th- it's kind of crazy. This is the first time in Belichick's tenure which goes back to 2000, that they've held an opponent to less than 20 points in eight games straight. Like, that's, that's actually kind of crazy to think about, like, with how many good teams he's had over those years. It's the first time. And considering that the, the beginning of this run was defense-centric. The beginning right, exactly. of the Belichick run was basically, was the, the team was basically flipped. That's incredible. Yeah. God, they've given up the most yards per drive in the NFL coming into last week, and they just don't let teams score. It's we talked about this with Kevin, or Kevin and I talked about a little earlier, Danny. It's just the idea of situational football and how much it matters. Mm. I mean, the idea that you just really have to lock it down in the moments that matter most, and if you do, then it goes a long way. I mean, that's just so true. New England is the perfect example of that. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's funny because Belichick is sort of known as like you know the evil genius and. A lot of that is what he's done with Brady, what, you know, his different coordinators done with Brady, but he's a defensive minded coach. I mean, that's what he's always been. And, you know, that's sort of his, you know, that's his thing. And it's, it's showing up again. It's, I think it's, again, that's why we trust them to get it all figured out every year. But, but yeah, I think, again, this just makes them so much more dangerous because early on in the year, it was like, okay, Brady's going to have to score 35 points a game and drag them to the playoffs. And now, you know, they're, they're, Brady can have a bad game and they're still going to win in a blowout. Is there a situation for either of you guys off the field or on where you wouldn't trust Bill Belichick? (laughs) If you're on a flight and there's a small fire on the wing and you can see it, he would know. But then the cockpit swings open and Bill Belichick's there just going, yeah, we got, we got, we got a little fire. Like, (laughs) Do you have any fear at all in that spot? It would be amazing. He'll, he would go on like an 800 word diatribe yeah. about how to put out a small fire and all the agencies right. that go with it. Look, folks, he would roll his eyes at you if you ask how to fix I this. Had, I had a fire in, in 04. <laughs> I had a fire back in Cleveland, fire with the Giants. That's Remember the thing, that would be a fire Baltimore. from like 1986. He, like, he, is very, he, he has a, like a, a lot of fondness for that fire from 86. It stuck with him for a while. I remember driving to, to work with Ted Marshall Broda, and he talked about <laughs> fires. <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, I would love to see Belichick in like an escape the room. Like, How good would he be in that situation? He'd be out of there in like 10 seconds. <laughs> oh, All right, man. Danny, uh, let's get to some of the lesser playoffs. I just teams. want everyone to know I could do this Belichick bit for another hour. <laughs> and I'm I will be doing it. Don't have the time. I will be doing it off the air. <laughs> uh, all right, Danny. The Ravens and Jaguars both won again. You know they yep. seem like they're pretty entrenched in the AFC wild card race, but it's because of defense and running game for the most part. Sunday was a little different. You know you had big <laughs> games from Flacco and Bortles. Two questions for you: Do you think either of those guys can replicate that in a game that really matters? And two, if they can. Do either of those teams have a shot to give the Steelers and the Patriots a run? Yeah, so I'm saying like the odds of either of those guys doing it consistently are very low in my mind. Like yes. I, I came into this week um, 
basically thinking Flacco was the worst, was the worst starting quarterback in the NFL easily. And I mean, he still might be, but and and I was even talking with Mallory Rubin during the day, like early on in the in the in the games, like we got to at some point we're gonna have to write about Flacco because this is just getting ridiculous. But then he ended up having like actually a really good day. Um, I mean, he's just been so so bad. It's just like the most awful. dink and dunk offense imaginable. I think he's actually like on track to have the lowest yards per completion of any quarterback or whatever. In history. So, in, in NFL history. In history. And that's why the approach was so strange on Sunday. And that's why I think that even if it's not something we see consistently from them, it was a nice just sight for anyone who cares about the Ravens because it's not as if they had something in the passing game. It's that they were trying to get something. The fact that <laughs> right. he was pushing the ball downfield, even considering it, was a departure from what they've been all season. And that throw to Mike Wallace down the sideline, even some of the ones he didn't complete, I mean, he was really just trying to rip some throws to Jeremy Macklin in the intermediate areas of the field. And we just haven't seen that from the Ravens at all this season. I mean, he had yeah. 192 yards in the first half. So It's just bizarro. And when they, I mean, I'm not saying this is the Ravens Super Bowl year again. I mean, that's just, their defense is as good, but the offense doesn't have as many pieces. There's so much more injured on that side of the ball. Mm-hmm. But the reason that Flacco got hot in those playoffs is because they threw the ball down the field. Yeah. And that's just what they should be doing. If you can't have a consistent passing game, why not just chuck it to Wallace every once in a while and try to find Macklin on some crossers? It doesn't make sense to not do that every time because that's all Joe Flacco does well is push the ball. If they can, he, get he doesn't that, do it that I well, mean, by the way. It's what he does better than most things. Is what I, is what I meant. <laughs> right. I mean, if they can get even an average offense, and this is sort of the inverse of the Patriots, where you know even an average defense will make them a championship caliber team. If if the if the Ravens can get an average offense, just even average, I think that they are a Super Bowl team. That's how good their defense has been. Which, you know, it's it's kind of flown under the radar. Actually, I think they're you know up there with the Jags in terms of just dominant in in so many different stats. Um, you know, it's sort of flying under the radar because I think that you know maybe it's just more regular for them to have really good defense or whatever. But yeah, that defense is amazing. The Jimmy Smith injury is a factor, but. But yeah, I mean, they have a championship caliber defense. If they can get just a few of those games from Flacco, especially like later in the year, you know, then to me, they're just, they're so much more dangerous. But I don't have a ton of faith. I, I just don't have a ton of faith watching just Flacco all year. It, love. You know, if he does it a few more times, maybe. But to me, it's still just, that's like a little bit of an aberration. I could probably say the same about Bortles. Um, he's just too turnover prone in my mind. He's the kind of you know guy who will get hot for a little while and then get a little cocky and like make a really really terrible pass or something like that you know, so I think you know they're probably both. I just can't see it being a, a major factor down the stretch. I think they're going to have to win with their defense and run game still. I agree with you, but here's the reason that I would have a little bit more faith in it happening for the Ravens. It's that with Bortles, we've seen him ping pong all year. He's had a yep. decent game. He's had a terrible game. It's not as if a, a switch was flipped. If right. Flacco can just come into games with this approach, that's different than what we've seen all season. And I think that if this is the start of that, even if he's Joe Flacco and he's not a very good quarterback, I still feel like that mindset and just way of going about their offense is an improvement and a way to get better. The problem, again, is you need a perfect defense when Joe Flacco is your quarterback, and now you lose Jimmy Smith. So any right. kind of like chipping away at that unit is going to hurt them. Marlon Humphrey... Had a very up and down game. You know, got roasted by Marvin Jones a couple times. They need the best defense in the league to be dangerous with Flacco. And now maybe they aren't that anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's those little things like you said they chip away. Um, I think the one thing I I'll agree with you. The one thing about Flacco is that he has done it in the past. Like that that playoff run where they won the Super Bowl, you know, he has that on his resume at least. You know, so obviously he hasn't been that guy basically since, but. You know, maybe they can just rediscover that magic or something. It gives, just try gives, to throw it. Just try to throw it more than five yards it. down the field. That's all I ask. And <laughs> if they do that, it's probably going to be better than what we've seen before. Alex Collins be. is still good. I mean, just do everything you can to like conjure some offense. And that's what we saw on Sunday. And who knows? I think that they can keep doing that. And I think that's why I feel a little better about their offense than the Jags. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on board with that. I, I agree. All right, buddy. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. We'll see you on Friday, as we always do. And uh, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, guys. Danner. All right, Kevin. Before we get out of here, let's offer our lasting impressions from week 13. Okay. So this is basically putting a bow in the entire show. And something I've been thinking about. We've spent the last 13 weeks talking about, I don't know, maybe the lack of drama in this NFL season, maybe the lack of intrigue. The NFC playoffs are are here to help us. I don't know what to expect. I've never been more excited. I was at dinner last night with another NFL writer. um, And one of the frustrations I was saying is normally on December 4th, on December 5th, you just say, okay, well, these are the four teams I know will be playing on January 12th or whatever it is. I know I can go to, you know, every year I knew I could go to, Green Bay around this time, and you could pencil them in for a divisional round. I could do two features and we're done, right? I don't know what the hell to do. I truly have no idea what I'm supposed to do from a story perspective. And there are two separate things. From a story perspective, you know, that doesn't matter. From a fan perspective, that means there's a lot of intrigue, and that's really cool. It is going to be so fun to watch these teams knock each other out. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it, no matter who gets in, and that's another question, who does get in? I mean, do the Falcons sneak in? Do the Seahawks sneak in? Do the Packers somehow get involved in this? I mean, every single team is interesting. and I don't know. What's the field you want? Have you thought about that? Uh, I care? mean, I, I want Rodgers in. I think, that's, I think mine is L.A., Seattle, the Vikings, the Packers, the Eagles, and the Saints. I think that's mine. But then the Falcons don't get in. And I think the Falcons could be fun. I don't know. There's it's wait, no I'm sorry, how it breaks, just, it's gonna be amazing. Are you did you name six teams there? Or did you throw yeah. an extra team in there? No, I said six, I think. Right? Are the Panthers in? No. Okay. Not in like the teams I want to watch in the playoffs. The Pat the Panthers did not get in. No, no, but I think I think they might make it, is the thing. Sure. But that's what I'm saying. If the Packers win this week and the Panthers lose and then Green Bay knocks off Carolina with right. Rodgers, right. then things get crazy. Right. So I, there's really, who knows at this point? And again, it, whatever happens, it, it's going to be just endlessly watchable. I really, no, so I totally agree. The with one you. thing I really can't wait for is wild card weekend. Maybe you get the Rams, Packers, you get the Saints against the Seahawks in New Orleans, a completely absurd, loud arena, a stadium rather. And the other games, uh, Jaguars, Chiefs, and Ravens, Titans. Yeah, the AFC is great. Re- really excited about that first round in the AFC playoffs. Ravens, Titans. All right, let, let's stay with just some miserable stuff. And do they still do? Remember they they still do it like the Saturday night wild card game, which everyone just knew to ignore. It was yeah, always like sure they are. Redskins, Panthers. 
Remember that? Was, uh, remember that Panthers, uh, Panthers Cardinals game? Yeah. Oh, I do. Trust me, I remember it well. I remember one time I was trying to do a story on Bruce Arians, and I asked John Gruden. It was before that game. I was like, "Is there? Are they doing anything schematic that impresses you?" And Gruden seemed almost offended that I had asked him to break down Ryan Lindley. Like he, it was not. He wasn't mean about it or anything. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of like, "I'm not." I'm not doing that. I'm not talking about Ryan Lindley yeah, here. Thank you. I'm not. I'm just not doing. Appreciate that. I appreciate you. your question. Appreciate you. Oh, all right. Let, let's stay with some just terrible football. And my takeaway from the weekend is just how freaking miserable the, the Chicago Bears are right now. The fact that the Bears lost a game where Robbie, Robbie Gold made five field goals is just the most perfect thing in the world. Because the Bears cut Robbie Gold for no reason because they needed to save a couple million bucks, and now they have no kicker. So it's really fun. I mean, that's just is cosmic justice in the best way. But everything about how this team is being handled is frustrating to me. The fact that John Fox came out yesterday and said the reason they didn't let the 49ers score at the end of the game is they thought they had a good chance to block the field goal. It's, it's awesome. I know. I'm going the other NFL way on coach. that. I'm going the other way at rules. It, it's He's just, just making stuff up. It's just completely making stuff up. There was a there about a minute forty seven, I want to say, when it was clear that they were in field goal range, and if you let them score on that high touchdown run, you would have gotten the ball back with about a minute and a half. There's no possible reason that you can rationalize not letting them score a touchdown there. It's just I don't understand what he good. does. It's very it, good. It, I really don't understand what he does, and I really don't understand what the plan is here. If in what possible world can you take Mitchell Trubisky number two, see the way that this team has handled him this year from a front office perspective and say, John Fox will be the coach here next year. And if that is the case, why wouldn't you start finding your new coach now? Because reading everything about what the Rams did and how they landed McVay is that the month head start they had to kind of slow play the interview process really dig into his plan, what he wanted to do, and then get in front of other teams wanting him, that was precipitated by them firing Jeff Fisher a month before the season was over. So I don't understand what the plan is here. We're just going to let John Fox play out the string? I don't like calling for people's jobs. I understand the realities that go along with that. But at a certain point, it's over. And this is over. I feel like one of the issues with the what is the plan idea, especially when you consider getting a head start on the coaching search, is that the people in charge are still the people who hired John Fox. I understand that, but it, you so can't I'm just, chase I'm one just bad saying, decision with another. No, 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 I'm saying they made the bad decision. Perhaps they are bad decision makers. I understand bringing in John Fox at the last I didn't. point in kind of creating the franchise that you want. When you need to take a next step, I think that you get rid of John Fox. The, everything about what the Rams did is applicable to me here. You need a coaching staff whose number one goal is to get the most out of the guy you drafted number two overall. That is the first question I would ask anyone in this interview. What is your plan to get the most out of this quarterback? I think that's why you need an offensive coach. I think everything about the way they've handled Trubisky and everything about the way this season has gone offensively yeah. leads you to believe that something drastically needs to change. And I think it needs to change sooner rather than later. Uh, right now, for instance. Yes, like tomorrow. Today. It's Tuesday. It's your off day. There Players you go. aren't in the building. All right, buddy. That's who's it who's their coach in waiting? I need to hear their, like, who's their interim coach going to be? I'll probably Fangio. Phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, that would be my guess. Unless you want to give it to Donald Loggins, which would inspire. Oh, wow. from no one. 
<laughs> I'd like really to see situation. that. It's a really I'm bad in. situation. I'm in on logins. All right, buddy. That's it for today. We'll be back on Friday to recap a huge Saints-Falcons Thursday night game mm-hmm. and get everyone set for Week 14. As always, thank you for listening to the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks, guys. Support for today's show comes from Hotel Tonight, an awesome app for finding and booking great deals at great hotels. No crashing on an air mattress in your childhood bedroom this year. Instead, lock down your holiday plans with Hotel Tonight. Book a room up to seven days in advance everywhere and up to 100 days in advance in certain major cities. Or wait until the last minute if it's more of your speed. Whether you need a room for tonight, holidays, or beyond, you definitely want to download the Hotel Tonight app.